Hey, this is Gina Grad. Hi, this is Teresa Strasser. Hi, everyone. This is Mike Errico. Hey there. This is Casey Cavalier. I'm Rocky Rose. And you are listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Lucky you. Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show. A behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host, Jay Franzi. Well, hello and welcome to the show. I am Jay Franzi, and this is your backstage pass to the entertainment industry. This week, we get to talk with a multi-award winning drummer. We get to talk with Paul Lyme. We'll talk to him about the impact that Louis Belson had on him, what it was like playing on the road with Tom Jones, and we'll talk to him about his time in the studio with Lionel Richie. Now, Paul is not only a great studio drummer, but he's an amazing live drummer. He is the top choice for tracking records and recording films. And I can't wait to talk to him about all of that here tonight. So if you would like to join in, comment, or fire off any questions, please head over to jfranzi.com. Now, let's get started. Paul, sir, how are you? We're doing great. We're, uh, we're in the middle of Ice Planet Hoth here in Nashville. It is a little cold there, sir. Moved here from, from L.A. 36 years ago, and I've never seen anything like this. But it's beautiful snow. But we've got a flight to Germany we've got to get out on in about 36 hours, and I hope planes start to fly again. <laughs> Holy cow. Talk about some pressure, right? Yeah. You know about the pressure cooker. Well, there is so much I want to talk to you about tonight, sir. I mean, what I want to start off with is your inspiration. What kind of impact did Louis Belson have on you? Oh, my gosh. A family friend, um, Freddie Rainhill was a flying buddy of my dad's. My dad had an airplane on our farm in Texas and uh, they were flying buddies and he would come over and hang out for the weekend, stuff like that. And I was beating on everything in the house in the third grade. I would go to band practice with my sister and, and he said, uh, you've got to hear something. And he brought skin deep. He brought a recording a 1952. I believe it was, I believe it was a 52 where Louie, uh, done this arrangement skin deep for a uh, Duke Ellington. And, uh, they recorded it. It just changed my life when I heard those bass drums and I heard that solo. I knew at that moment that that's what I had to, <laughs> that's what I had to do about 10 or 12, I guess it was maybe, I think it was more like 12 probably, but yeah, Louis was my very first hero. And then our little town of troop didn't have a real drum set. So I would take a marching bass drum home for the summer and a parade drum for a snare drum and a parade drum for a Tom in front and a, and a marching cymbal, take it off the leather, you know, use the Piatti and, and, and set it up as a cymbal and play along with uh, the Beatles and Ringo and, and, uh, and stuff. And my mom always had music going in the house. So we would have uh, breakfast at Tiffany's going and, and she would get these time life uh, records or stack of records. And it'd be Ferranti and Teicher and, uh, and uh, Hank Mancini. And so, gosh, that was when I was 14. And by the time I was, 15 years later, by the time I was 29, by the time I was 29, I was working with Henry Mancini. That is amazing. Yeah, it's pretty much it's pretty much the way my whole career has gone. I was a huge Tom Jones fan when I was in high school. He had his TV show, 
and my favorite, like the Elvis show that we do, so, so many of uh, the big screen show Elvis concert and stuff, my favorite orchestra to play in is a rock and roll rhythm section with a full orchestra behind you. It's everything. That's that's all. That's why God intended music to be done with every instrument on the planet all playing at once, in my opinion. So uh, I would always be late for my honky tonk gig on Wednesday nights because <laughs> Tom's show is on Wednesday nights, and so I I'd be late for work. And he always always get on me, and I said, "Man, I'm going to be late. I'm just going to be late on Wednesday nights." Tom Jones has his TV show, but I was 18 at the time, and uh, by the time I was 28, 10 years later. I was doing all of Tom Jones's recordings and TV specials and uh, special concerts. I've been incredibly fortunate. I've worked my butt off. It's hard work. Pros make it look easy, but it's a lot of hard work. Yes. You, sir, you make it look easy. So what was it like being on the road with Tom Jones? Oh, that was great. Both of us would lose five pounds in two hours because I'm so excited to be with him. Same thing happens with the Elvis show, but I'd lose five pounds in two hours doing his show with the uh, all those songs and of course he's dancing around jumping on stage and all the stuff he did those crazy moves of his and i'm catching everything and uh and then we'd uh we'd take a shower and go get on the jet to go to the next city and he'd still be on he'd be as he's walking back to the uh his private suite at the back of the jet it was a vickers viscount and at the back of the jet he'd be hitting the back of the seats walking through this Come along, baby, whole lot of shaking going on. He'd be singing <laughs> Elvis and Jerry Lee Lewis. And just he's a great guy. I hadn't seen him in 40 years, and he played the Ryman maybe six months ago now. And I got out my old tour jacket from 1977, and so I, I went to see him at the Ryman. I hadn't seen him in 40 years, and he just had the same sweet smile and and sweet sweet demeanor, and and he's just such a great guy. I love Tom Jones. He was everything I thought he was when I didn't know him in high school. He was everything I thought he was. That's awesome. And he's amazing. His voice is just beyond reason. He's so incredible. But, uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. After that, that was 77. So by 79 and 80, when Lee Squar asked me to go out with James Taylor, we had kids at home. It, that wasn't the thing to do. So I stayed at home with the kids. Like you're at home with your kids right now, aren't you? True statement. Which is a good thing. Good on you. So I, I decided not to go out, and I stay in the studio. I just thought that's where my future was with my family, so it worked out. Now, you've had an amazing career, and you've played with just about everybody under the sun, but at the start of your career, touring with Tom Jones and flying on private jets, did you even know what you had at that time? Not really till later, when you're in the middle of it. I had a guitar player, one of the guys I worked with in Dallas, Vic Stewart, worked with him a lot. And when I moved to L.A. in, uh, in January of uh, 77, we were talking. And he said, you're going to be so busy when you're the guy, when you're the cat. You're going to be so busy, you won't know it. You'll just be working. It's kind of the way it was. I mean, there's a lot of things I forgot I did. Tracy, she's our assistant, and she's found things that I completely forgot that I did. TV specials with Roseanne Cash and, and TV specials with Tom Jones and Tanya Tucker. I completely forgot that I did them. And she'll say, well, I think you did it in, in uh, June of 79. And I go, gosh, did I really do that? And I've still got all my old studio logs <laughs> and everything. I go back and I look. There it is, June the 12th, 1979. Tom Jones and Tanya Tucker. I, I'm making up that date. But she's found all this stuff. And uh, it's just been an incredible opportunity. I grew up to be 
what I wanted to be. And I, I just, I'm so thankful. I'm just so thankful. Well, you've, um, you've played with some of my favorites from Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton to Shania Twain, but you've also had the opportunity to play on some of the Lionel Richie stuff. Can you talk about that? Yeah, we were doing Kenny Rogers. We were doing a, a particular record. It was uh blaze of glory. I believe it was. We were at the old ABC Dunhill, which he ended up buying and remodeled and put in a studio called Lion Share yep. there in Hollywood. We were working on Kenny, and Jim Mazza, Kenny Rogers' manager, was on a flight that Lionel Richie was on. And so he started talking to Lionel, and uh, he said, you know, why don't you, you know, Kenny was the hottest thing on the planet, right? So he said, you know, that'd be great if you and Kenny did a, you know, work together. What would you think of that? And Lionel's a great guy, Southern boy, and, and uh, he, too, is exactly what do you think? He's not making up anything. That's who he is. He's so kind. He's so endearing. He makes you feel like you're the most important person in the room, and he has the ability to do that with everybody. So Lionel came in the studio because Jim Mazza had introduced them, and he goes, this is my band. This is my, I love this band. So that's how we kind of ended up starting working with Lionel. He, he interchanged some people, but uh, it was John Hobbs and Joe Chimay and um, we were kind of a, a unit there that we had done. The first gold record I ever played on was an album called TNT with Tanya Tucker. And Jerry Sheff, who was with Elvis at the time, he put that band together. And it was Billy Joe Walker Jr. and uh, John Hobbs, Jerry Sheff, and myself. That was the rhythm section. But then Jerry went out on the road with John Denver. He went out with John Denver. So we were in the studio. And so there was a he left a big hole in, in uh, L.A. Uh, when he started touring. Uh, of course, he'd been with Elvis, but he tried to stay in town as much as he could. We'll be here all night long if I get off track. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So uh, so John Hobbs knew Joe Chimay, and Joe and I ended up doing probably 200 million records together after that. The first record we did was Truly. And we were working at uh, A&M-B, A&M Studio B in uh, when we started, James Anthony Carmichael producing, of course, and it was just a great time to see Lionel come into his own right, so to speak, with his songs and his and his artistry as he started pulling away from the Commodores. And in the interim between when he said, this is my band, this is what we're going to do, Lionel Richie called me one day, I'll never forget it, stand in my kitchen in Thousand Oaks. He called and he said, he said, Paul, this is Lionel, I'm going... Hello. Okay. Hey, Lionel, how you doing? He said, he said, man, you think this is going to work? You know, the guys that come out of a band, they're so used to sharing the limelight with everybody else. It's a group effort. They're used to being in a group. They're not used to working with studio guys. And instead of working on one song for a week or something like that, like some of the bands did, they work on a song forever. We go in and look at three hits in a day, you know? So uh, he was worried about it not working. He said, man, you know, you're in the studio with all these people and you work with all these people and man, do you really think this is going to work? You know, being away from the guys and I said, Lionel, man, this is a home run. Dude, it's a home run. You don't have to worry about this. You got this. Peter Cetera did the same thing when, uh, when we did Glory of Love. He called. He said, Paula, it's Peter. And I said, again, I'm like, hey, Peter, how you doing? <laughs> you know, coming out of a band. He's having his first hit record. And he said, hey, Peter, how you doing? Yeah. 
what's going on? And he said, uh, man, we go number one. Glory of Love goes number one next week. I, got, I just got the word, goes number one next week. Man. And I said, it's your record. And he said, well, you're part of it. Right. And I said, man, that's awesome. That's all. Thanks for thinking of me. I, I said, that's great, man. This was wonderful. You know, then when it got nominated for Academy Award, hey, Paul, it's Peter. <laughs> so, sometimes you develop a closer rapport with them, and sometimes you got to be careful about getting too close. Word of warning to people, let them get close. Don't try to pull yourself and get too close. That's a recipe for disaster. <laughs> a red flag. That's a red flag. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about was with Lionel Richie, a lot of effort went into that session. Yep. Can you talk about that session for a minute? Uh, with Lionel stuff, he was so used to working with his band, and they would go in and they would labor and labor over a song. So he just did like Mutt Lang. He just couldn't, he couldn't comprehend that the musicians were of a caliber where they could go in and do their best performance, listen to the song down, play it, come up with some ideas. The second take, third take, fourth take maybe is going to be their best performance. Lionel would want to, he would want to do it over and over. And James Anthony Carmichael, his producer, he would write out everything. And he would want to run the intro, run the intro and the verse, stop, don't go any further. Very similar to Mutt Lang, that piece at a time, let's get all this perfect. Let's make your notes or remember what we're doing here. Let's don't go any further. Let's get this perfect. So now we're going to play intro, verse, and first chorus. Okay, and stop at the first chorus. Don't keep going. So we stop. And Lionel would always, uh, he would always talk to me. He would talk to me, Paul dig in here or Paul, not so hard here. <laughs> There's a great story. You can actually go on, you can actually go on Alexa uh, prime music and uh, you can hear the Lionel talking to me. <laughs> we would play it over and over and over and over. And then it would get to be two o'clock in the morning. Everybody just going, man, I'm tired. Okay. And then Lionel would say, everybody available tomorrow at two. You look at your schedule and you go, oh, I've got a TV show till three. Can we do it? At oh yeah, no problem. No problem. We'll start at five. Great. It's time for sushi, right? So we stop, finish your first date, leapfrog sets. I have uh, one set would be at Universal. The other set goes to Lionel Richie. And then the set that's at Universal when I'm Lionel Richie goes to Warner Brothers the next day. And then the set two, I actually numbered mine one and two. Hal Blaine had a better idea. He, he marked them in colors, blue and red, because he had a producer say one time, why have I got set two? Right. Why don't I have set one? <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Am I not worth set one? Right. Yeah. They were identical sets, identical shells and everything. But anyway, yeah, we ended up playing Stuck on You for three days of triple dates, all day long for three days. And it was like, uh, yeah, we'll play this. Lionel, we'll play this as long as you want to play it. That's insane <laughs> to me. Yeah. Well, you know Nashville. You worked with us here in Nashville. I know, but things are yeah. so fast. I mean, and you, yeah. you get players like yourself and you tell them what you want and you get what you want on the first, second or third try. I mean, and it's done. And to yeah. just think that you're having those players play over and over and over again, eventually that curve has to start, you know, dropping down. Yeah. We didn't have cell phones then, but everybody would have been on their cell phone right. by about the 15th take <laughs> <laughs> looking at their date. You mentioned um, Mutt Lang in there as well. And you had an opportunity to work on the Shania records. 
we both know Bob. That's how I met you, Bob Bullock, working in the studio with him. Yeah. And he worked on the Shania Records, and I've heard stories from him. Yeah. But that was before my time working with Bob, so I didn't get to work on the records. What was it like working with him? Had Mutt been born uh, 150 years earlier, he would have been uh, Mozart. He's an absolute genius. He hears all the parts that he wants. He has certain things with every record. If you'll listen to any Mutt Lang record, you will hear the bass cut off before the snare drum hits. It's He wants a tiny breath of air just before the snare drum hits so the snare drum can speak in the track. So the bass never holds over where the snare drum is going to hit. But I think it was, come on over, the woman in me, and then up. Right. right? Yeah, Dave was on the first one, and then Joe Chimay was on the second one, because uh, I heard some, a lot of records that Joe and I had played on together. I worked as much with both Dave Hungate uh, and Joe Chimay. We, uh, we did so many hundreds and hundreds of sessions together. Uh, yeah, but with Lionel, he would, uh, <laughs> funny thing about Lionel, he would, he would uh, he would try to get distracted if there were people in the studio. He's very very social, so he would go out in the hall and start walking down the hallway trying to talk to somebody, and he'd tell Cal to keep playing the track back. We're in the control room listening. Cal's playing the thing back, and if he could go out in the hallway and try to carry on a conversation, but if the track was so compelling that it drew him back in the studio, he would go. Hang on a second. And he'd stop the conversation and walk back in. And he'd walk back in with us. He'd walk back into the control room. He'd go, sniffing. He'd, I smell money. I smell money. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that, was, that, was Skeet's, that was Skeet's line. I smell money. His nickname in college was Skeet. So we'd call him Skeet every once in a while. So anyway, Brenda told me, uh, Brenda Richie told me, his nickname in college was Skeet. Call him Skeet sometimes. So one session, I... I said, hey, Skeet, what are we doing on this? And she went, where'd you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so it was great. But the uh, Say You, Say Me, that was, that was later on when they were linking multiple machines together, and it was getting incredibly complex. And Lionel sometimes didn't have the songs completed. We get in the studio. And I'll tell you a story about this, and you can go online as soon as we're done, or any of your listeners can uh, go online on Amazon Music and listen to this. But I'm going to tell the story. With Say You, Say Me, he had the uh, the ballad part done, and I programmed just boom, ga, boom, ga, boom, on the Lindrum, right? And, and then, of course, they went in and replaced any sound. Now you can do it Pro Tools like that. It's nothing. Right. But back then, you had to use a publison. So it was a sampler that was the latency on the response on that. And you could put a gate on the snare drum where it would just go. You didn't get a trail on the snare drum. Use that spike, hit the publison, put it on the record, and you could put any snare drum sound you wanted on the record. So matter of fact, JR asked me one time, he said, he said, I know that's my snare drum on Say You Say Me, but <laughs> you, played the, you played the Tom Fills, and it's my snare drum. And I said, man, it's publison. You know, Cal did it with Publison. Oh, that's how they did it. Okay. So anyway, they, they get these, <laughs> this, the slow part and then the fast part and then back to the slow part. And so I programmed this one song and he built this other song in the middle of it. It wasn't all done like this. It was edited together. And so I went back in and I'm all, all the drum fills, the goo goo, 
Say you, say me, then back to the Lindrum. So it's JR in the fast part. Whoa, yeah. It's me programming the Lindrum on the front and the back, and it's me playing the drum fills between the edited together sections. Sometimes we just have to build records like that to get what they want. Oh, going back to Truly. When we cut the very first one, Lionel, he just didn't feel comfortable when we would cut his demo. He just wasn't comfortable with it. And uh, he was just, yeah, that sounds great. Guys, guys, it's great. It's great, but it just, it just, it doesn't have, you know, it just doesn't have this. It doesn't have, and so after about two days, we said, play the demo. Play us the demo. Play us your piano vocal demo. So he played it. It was magical. It was just magical. I think one of us I just said, put it out like that. There's your record. You don't need anything else on that. Overdub strings on it, and there's your record. And uh, there's your record, Hoss, like I said on <laughs> Denial. Anyway, uh, there's your record. And uh, no, 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 no. We want this on. Let's, let's overdub. So we overdubbed drums and bass to Lionel Richie's piano vocal demo on Truly, and that's why you'll hear it float to keep that emotion in it. You'll hear that track float, and it's okay. Tempo's part of music. Right. We've gotten into this world of the after click. the long weekend in '83. We, we turned into a click environment, and and it just it's a shame. But uh, tempo's part of music. Al Blaine used to rush on the end of every song, and it just sounded so exciting. It was great. All the mamas and the papas stuff, listen to those records. <laughs> On the fade out, you'll hear Hal pushing it, getting faster and faster. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty cool. We had Mike Errico. He's a singer-songwriter from New York. He was on the show, and he was talking about working with Jay Joyce and said that Jay had a quote of the click track, suck the life out of music. Yeah. So, great line. That's yeah. a great line. Yeah. 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 And, then, and then drummers that had really good time that actually were not used to playing with it, would get mad. They'd say, well, that thing's dragging. No, it's not dragging. It's not dragging. We all learned how to listen to Hal Blaine. Right. And Hal Blaine had this, he would float things a little quicker and a little quicker, and that put the excitement in him. Listen to an, listen to an Elvis performance with Ronnie Tut playing. I have to play along with those tracks on big screen. <laughs> That's the excitement that Elvis wanted in, in his live performances, you know, and, and Ronnie went with it. Ronnie had the best time in the world, but he went with it. Yeah, he was Elvis's live drummer. Yeah, after the 68 comeback special, Ronnie was with Elvis for uh, nine years. He was a dear, dear friend. Our kids grew up together. His family with Donna and, and uh, our family, uh, our kids all grew up together. So we're like extended family. And That's too bad. Couldn't stand up, and I went to my knees is when they carried him out of the house. It was a sad day. He was a great, great mentor and a great friend. He was a great player. Yeah. He was great. Ronnie, you know, came out of North Texas, you know, playing big band in the lab band, North Texas. Of course, he was a studio guy. It's Ronnie Tut on Feliz Navidad. Jose Feliciano, Feliz Navidad. That's Ronnie Tut. It's Ronnie Tut on Piano Man with uh, Billy Joel. Billy Joel. Yeah. So anyway, I loved Ronnie. So yeah. I enjoy talking about him. Well, I mean, I always thought it was funny, too. You know, I didn't know growing up that there was live players and then there were studio players and a lot of times those paths don't cross. It seems to be happening more and more these days, but it, when I started, it was, you had the studio guys playing in the studio and that was it. 
That's true. Back in L.A., if you went on the road, it was kind of the kiss of death in the studios. But Lee Sklar, fabulous and incredible bass player, Lee Sklar, he's the bass player you saw with Phil Collins and uh, James Taylor with the full beard right. all the way down to his chest. And yep. he looks like a biker. He's terrified of motorcycles. <laughs> Lee would never get on a motorcycle, but he looks like but a biker. Dude. <laughs> but that's his, I mean, that's his, uh, that's his brand. I would never be very good at branding. That's my next thing. Yeah. <laughs> branding yourself. There you go. Well, you're doing that right now. Bearding myself. Bearding <laughs> I was talking to Jeff King about that because he's a great session player. I love working with Jeff. Great. And he also goes on the road with Reba and Brooks and Dunn. Yeah. And I was asking him how he fits that in and how he's doing it. And he says, well, these days, as long as your schedule can handle it, that's the stigma isn't quite there anymore. Do you find that to be true? Yeah, that's very true. Uh, back in 2013, we'd worked with Michael Nesmith from the Monkees back awesome. since 78 after the Monkees were over. And we got back together with Michael in 2013. And he had this concept of an album and a live performance you want to do called Music of the mind and he wanted to tell stories around the songs that he'd written like joanne and and those songs and i was like oh boy because i was doing all the kenny chesney records yeah. at the time and, and so uh thankfully buddy cannon or shannon finnegan his assistant would would call and and say paul can you do kenny chesney's 10 o'clock on the so-and-so and i'd say i'm in new jersey with michael nesmith but i'll catch the red eye back can he make it at two o'clock? So they would kindly move it to two o'clock so I could make it. And you talk about pressure cooker. Wow. Getting on a plane in New Jersey in Hoping February. Hoping to make it on time. Oh. And we've all done it. I've gotten on a, on a 6 a.m. flight in Nashville because you pick up two hours going to L.A. I've gotten on a 6 a.m. flight in Nashville. And Johnny Lord at uh, Center Staging had me set up for a 10 a.m. in Los Angeles, walk in the studio at 9.30 and have a 10 o'clock downbeat. Here's your chart, go. Here's your chart, go. Speaking of charts, can you take a minute to discuss the Nashville number system? Yeah, sure. Matter of fact, strange you should say that. Here's one right here. Oh, it's Kenny Chesney. Here's the very chart we used on a song called Coach. It's probably shorthand and a song called Famous. And the idea is, say it's in C. So C, F, C, F. So if C is da, 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 four, four, the one and the four, then the five. So Louie Louie, the old song, ba, na, na, ba, 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 for your listeners, is, uh, it's one, one, one. Four four five 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 four four one 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 and so many songs, especially country songs. It most a lot of songs, pop songs and everything one, four, are five. built on a on a typical one four five, just different arrangements of one four five. So that's if it's in C. Of course, if it's in the key of B, then it's associated in the one, the four, and the five again. Go find a song that we did on Kenny Chesney that has famous in it. I don't know. I don't know what it is. <laughs> oh, I played Cajon on that. Oh, that was that was nine twenty four thirteen. That's when I flew back in from Michael Nesmith. The story I was telling you earlier. There's the chart. And it all I played comes a full around. circle. We cut a tune called "Beer Can Chicken" on Kenny Chesney, like it never happened. A tune called "Salt." 
Crossroad. Larry Paxton did all our charts, and so he would do shortcuts. He wouldn't actually write out the whole title. Matter of fact, sometimes he put a funny title in place of it. Right. Another Chesney tune, South Side of Heaven. As we're listening down to the demo, I hear things in my head as I'm listening because I already know what I'm going to do. So it's just from years of doing it. I, the first listen down, I start marking my part in my head, what I want to remember to do when I get back out on the floor, right? We call this a Charleston figure. Don't, 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 want, don't, don't, right? And so the, the word Charleston comes from the old thing from the 30s. That's the figure, dotted quarter, eighth note, bump, bump, do, 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 bump, bump, and we call it a Charleston. Guys, we're going to play a Charleston there. Is that funny? Studio lingo. So anyway, uh, your question. So when you get that chart and someone presses play on the demo, how quickly do you go from that to getting in the studio and going red? Well, we'll listen down to the demo. Sometimes it's just a uh, guitar vocal demo or a piano vocal demo. Usually it's guitar. And uh, most usually it is a completed demo that they've done at a publishing company because they're trying to pitch the song. So we'll listen down. I'll make notes like I just talked about. I'll hear a part in my head, and I'll go ahead and write down what I think I want to do. Then we go in and we run it. And when you work with somebody like Dave Hungate or Joe Chimay or Larry Paxton so much, you're both already hearing the same thing. I mean, we've done hundreds and hundreds of sessions together. It's like, have you ever had your wife, you have a thought and she says it? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's what happens when you spend that much time in the studio with and doing so many different artists with the same players. You, you almost know what they're going to play. And that's why they sound like hit records because a lot of times we do the same thing over and over. <laughs> over. There's another Kenny chart called Santa Monica your listeners can actually go on and tell Alexa to play Santa Monica by Kenny Chesney. And they'll hear that chart. Love is what you make it. My first note on, on this tune, nobody sat on a Saturday night for Kenny Chesney. My first note was hand claps. <laughs> so here's a tune in the same pile. This is Billy Ray Cyrus. Some gave all. Dude, he's just awesome. Record. I love Billy. Yeah. I love Billy Ray. And of course we always just, we just market BRC. Anyway, that's some pretty cool stuff there. I didn't even know we are going to do that. <laughs> that was I like awesome. That. I appreciate you doing that. It was really cool. Yeah. You've had the opportunity, like I said, to play with everybody, but you've also played some music for movies. Can you talk about what the difference is between playing for a record and playing for a movie? More pressure yet. Really? Why is that? More pressure yet. Well, if you're doing a picture with John Williams and there's 106 pieces on the floor, 106 musicians on the floor and he wants it on the second take one's a rundown and the second take that's the take that's it i mean you don't go hey wait i you know i think you know john <laughs> you know i think i, I kind of missed that part on the set going into the second course I, I i could use that again with 106 people on the floor right. no 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 you don't do that you sight read it down the first time and you play the song you play a perfect part the second time it's just the way it is how does that make you feel? That's just what you do. There's no feeling or emotion about it. It's just, you just do it. I mean, after years and years of doing right. it, that's just what you do. It's just part of the job. It was different when we uh, 
when we did the Star Wars thing with John with uh, the Max Rebo band, uh, a song called Jedi Rocks, the Max Rebo band. He was in a hurry. And we were we were scoring this this uh, scene in Jabba's lair. It's Jabba's lair where Leia comes back in. She's got the thermo detonator in her hand, and she's trying to get Jabba to let go of Han Solo because Han Solo's in cryo freeze, right? And there's that party with the blue elephant playing the piano and that thing. Yeah, he was in a hurry, and he just ran. He came in and scrolled out a rhythm part. And we, we played down the rhythm part, and then he had Jerry Hay come in and score the, the trumpets, and Jerry Hay wrote the trumpets on it. So that's a thing called Jedi Rocks, the Max Rebo band from Return of the Jedi. But yeah, with, with John or you know with Steve Dorff uh, doing all the episodic series, Johnny Harris, although my first episodic series was Wonder Woman with Linda. Yep. Of course, I was her musical director for... 13 years till COVID hit us in 2000, shut everything down. But, but yeah, you go in, you recut the theme. We had a thing in LA called for television and motion pictures. The contract called for hundred percent scoring. The business end of it was hundred percent scoring. Whereas doing a TV show for Dick Clark, that was Dick Clark's bloopers and practical jokes. I don't know if you ever saw yeah. that or not, but, when we did that, that was under the videotape agreement. And we love the videotape agreement because you go in and you do one session, you make 600 bucks for the one session, you get 75% because they can use the music over and over and over again. It's just a different negotiated contract. So, so you get 75%. So you do the first sessions at 600 bucks, you get 450 bucks a week for the rest of the year. That's what I like. <laughs> they negotiated 100% scoring. Why did they negotiate 100% scoring? So their engineers would keep working, so their tape ops would keep working, so they could keep billing for the studio and run the cost of the production up. And, oh, it's a profit deal. <laughs> Some old movie. So would you rather record a record or record a film? Oh, I love it all. Anywhere I can play. I love, I love playing with our fun band, the Eagle Maniacs, down at 3rd and Lindsley, or the TCB band with... Elvis show. I love that. I love doing movies. I love doing American Airlines commercials. Seven uh, Eleven, <laughs> Safeway. I love playing Trump's inauguration. You know, with the Jim Rushlow big band. What was that like? Oh my gosh, uh, it was just it was amazing. Uh, the uh, the ballrooms are the size of a football field. They're about a hundred yards long and fifty feet wide, and it just packed people so when tim called me when tim russell called me he said paulie said uh will you do trump's inaugurals i'd be honored to do that with you we have tim russell big band we do the american songbook and tim's such a great singer he does bobby darren as good as bobby darren did matter of fact the family bobby darren's family let him use the original charts we were playing bobby darren's original charts so anyway he calls and i said well i want to use I said, I want Drums Unlimited to supply the drums because they know what I need. They have my setup. And he said, well, the guy that's doing backline said he thinks he can get what you want. And I said, no, Tim, I, you know, I, I just, I know that Drums Unlimited can do it and just call John at Drums Unlimited and just get the drums from there. Well, this guy, Jan, said he really thought he knew what you wanted. I said, Jan? I said, Jan Parent? He said, 
Yeah, Jan Parent, that's his name. <laughs> that's center staging in Los Angeles. Then I thought, oh, yeah, it's just another Dick Clark TV show. <laughs> the, the whole inauguration, every inauguration, it's the pageantry of another CMA Awards or the ACMA Awards or the American Music Awards. And I did all those. You for played years. them all. I played them all. So it's, oh, it's just another TV show. Of course, Jan Parent. So I immediately called Jan. I go, Jan, were you having your way with Tim Rushlow? Are you bringing my drums from Los Angeles to D.C. for the inauguration? He said, oh, of course I am. I'm bringing your drums. <laughs> he said, I told him I thought I could get what you wanted. I was going to yeah, surprise you, though. Because it's your own kit. <laughs> it's my own kit. <laughs> anyway. That's crazy. So you've played every award show. Are there any differences between them? Some of them you're playing live. Sometimes uh, you'll be live with the artist, but like on the CMA Christmas specials the, with the orchestra that, that we did for 10 years, that's all pre-record. We do all the pre-record ahead of time. The artists are singing live, but what they do is they use the music. When you're editing TV shows together, you have to have something that's common. You either have to use a simpty track, and so you're using numbers uh, when you're editing a film together, but on musicals, the common ground for all the different takes, for the cutaways and all that, the common ground is the music. So the, the music is the, is the bed for the video edit. Right. So we do the pre-record where you see me up close. That's a dress rehearsal that we did the day before. It's not on the show. It's the, the day before. So the cutaways are close-ups of us. And they're called cutaways. And it's, it shows me and or me playing the hi-hat or, or, or Carrie Marks playing the guitar part or anybody any guitar player anytime you see a close-up that's not them it's already been done it's in the can and once the tv show comes out and is edited together they use the music for the timeline the stars doing the vocal and then they can go back and they fly in these cutaways of musicians playing up close in post that's how the production gets put together there's a benefit <laughs> for the click track if there was ever a benefit for one yeah yeah that's where the click track is important with that so, yeah, if you're doing a picture, if you're doing a movie, that's one thing. You're, you play a certain style then, and it has to be quick. So you go with the safe stuff or a TV show. You pretty much go with the safe stuff. It'll get you through the, the date as quick as possible. Then on records, you have more time to be more experimental. I can program something. But back when we were doing Battlestar Galactica and all that stuff, Everybody else went to lunch, and I'd sit there programming. And that was before MIDI. So we had to, we had to use the time machine. We'd use a time machine, and we use these analog subdividers to get the tempos. And we were working in frames per beat as opposed to beats per minute. That's insane. It is insane. I'm not sure I could do it anymore now <laughs> since I've been playing pop and country records in right. Nashville for, for 35 years. I'm not sure I'd want to be back in that pressure cooker again. It's it, you talk about a pressure cooker. It's because it's gotta be perfect. The second time there is no third take. The amount of work that goes into it and the edits that go into it to make it just perfect is insane to me. And when people hear it, they just think, Oh, wow, that was cool. Or, you know, that was a simple little beat. It's like, no, there's nothing simple about what you just heard. You're right. No, you're right. We work really hard to make it look easy. Yeah. It's a hot, lot of hard work to make it look easy. Yeah. What's it like to be an award winner? <laughs> well, it's always an honor to do that, just to be recognized for your hard work. 
it's not just being recognized because you played on a bunch of records. It is a lot of hard work. You fly to L.A. and you do a record, then you fly back and go straight to the studio. You don't see your family for days, and then you go out with Neil Diamond and or, or whoever, and you do concerts, and then you fly back and you're back in the studio with Kenny Chesney and or Michael Nesbitt, whoever. Like I say, it's uh, it's 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 a real honor to have been able to do this and and to be recognized for the hard work is is really something. But anyway, after. After the eight years in a row, they didn't want me to win it anymore at uh, Modern Drummer. So <laughs> they kind of sidelined me after eight. Gave it to somebody else. <laughs> a lot of guys deserve yeah. it. I'm just one of them. We have to play fair. Yeah. <laughs> so what's next for you? Well, we've got the TCB band, Elvis's band, as many originals as possible that are still playing. We go to Europe for his birthday, and we did the opening show at 3rd and Lindsley this last uh, Monday, uh, January the 8th which was his, uh, his Elvis' birthday. birthday. We'll be in Bad Homburg, Germany, uh, at the Steigenberger Hotel, where Elvis was stationed in Bad Homburg, stay at the same hotel. Bad Homburg and Bad Nauheim, which is about 15 minutes away, have taken Elvis in as hometown boy. As a matter of fact, in Bad Nauheim, when you look up across the street and the light changes, it's okay. It's an image of Elvis with a guitar like, you know, uh, it's it's not just a stop and go sign. It's right. a, it's an image of Elvis. That's pretty. So cool. yeah, we'll be uh, at Hamburg. We're gonna be in Amstetten, and then uh, two shows in Vienna, Intercontinental Hotel in Vienna, is like a third home best. So it's great. That's if weather cooperates, right? Uh, if we can get out of here, yeah. Like I said, <laughs> Nashville looks like Hoth. It looks like Ice Planet Hoth right now. Dude, I've lived in Nashville for twenty years, and it never was anything more than a dusting. It would be gone and. Two days, if anything. I, I, I don't know how anything's going to move here no. for days and days. I, I, we're going down, I think we're at about 10 degrees right now. Yeah. I don't see how we're going to get out. But Yeah, we've been single digits all week. Yeah. All right, sir. Well, we do this thing here we call Unsung Heroes, where we take a moment to shine the light on somebody who works behind the scenes, somebody who may have supported you along the way. Do you have anybody you'd like to shine a little light on? All my studio buds. They're the best musicians in the world. Los Angeles, New York, and Nashville. Nobody ever hears about them. Uh, thank goodness for guys like you that get it. Nobody ever hears about the, the hit makers. So uh, you know, the guys that played records for the last 70 years, the studio guys that nobody ever heard about once recording got to be popular in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s. Thank goodness I, I was on hit records for five decades. So very thankful for that. But all the studio guys that nobody ever hears about, those are my heroes and those are the unsung heroes in music. A big thanks to Paul for taking the time to share his stories with us. And thank you for taking the time to hang with me here. I really do appreciate it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can do that and find the links to everything mentioned over at jfranzi.com slash episode 48. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Make sure you visit us at jfranzi.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives, 
your source for 100% custom knives made by a true rock star. So, if you're in the market for a new piece of art, reach out to VR Knives. 407-421-5528. 407-421-5528.